What's up, everybody? Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. And if it's your first time listening or you listen all the time, do me a favor. Make sure that you've subscribed to whatever platform it is that you listen to. If it's Spotify or Apple, click that button, subscribe to the podcast, leave a review if you've got a couple of seconds, and click the five-star rating. It's the best way to support the podcast, and I appreciate it a ton. I also want to let you know that this episode is brought to you by Action Specialty Roast Coffee and Natural Supplements. If you haven't gone to the website, drinkaction.com, and that's action spelled A-K-T-I-O-N, then you need to head to the website, you need to use code word curious, and you need to order the best tasting specialty roast coffee and natural supplements, things like turmeric, which I get messages daily from people telling me I take active for inflammation reduction, and it's kicking ass for me. Um, A great combination product that I use, and I know a lot of other people use as well. Fuel, which is an MCT bomb, which we talk about in this episode, um, because my guest is ketogenic. Head to drinkaction.com, use code word curious, and sign up for a subscription, and you'll save an additional 20%. It's a great deal. My guest today is someone that I've been asking to have on the podcast for a while and excited that I was able to get him. He's been super busy, recently moved from Arizona to Austin, Texas. And he's the former world record holder in the 100-mile run. He's an ultra-marathon runner. And not only is he accomplishing just amazing feats of physical endurance, but he does it as a ketogenic athlete. And if you know anything about endurance and long-distance running, many people believe that a higher-carb diet is more advantageous. But um, being able to talk to him and understand his strategy it actually makes a whole lot of sense. It couldn't have been a more fun conversation. If you're into running, you got to check this episode out and share it with any of your friends that run as well. It uh, certainly won't disappoint. Give it up for my guest, Zach Bitter. show on the road and dude i appreciate you uh circling back and linking up with me i uh i know you just recently moved to austin which is one of my favorite cities and uh, i was curious if there's a specific reason that took you there as well too yeah yeah no austin's great i think uh our move here was kind of a few different reasons as most moves probably are nowadays uh you know my wife and i had been in phoenix for about four years she had previously been in Texas for about 12. She got her lottery from Baylor and then worked in Dallas for about 10 years. So when we got married and moved to Phoenix, that was mostly driven by work and things like that. But so much has changed in the last couple of years with the pandemic and both of our careers that Austin just made a little more sense for kind of all of our pursuits. She got a promotion at work that uh, makes it easier for her to be kind of closer to the East Coast time zone, central time zone she's kind of wanted to go back to Texas anyway. So there's a little bit of that incentive. And then the stuff I do from podcasting to coaching and stuff has some opportunities here in Austin that are just a little better. So we decided in the fall when kind of the housing market went a little crazy and, and our, our house in, in Phoenix kind of blew up a little bit. We thought, okay, now is the time to get in to Austin before it gets too, too wild over here. Cause it's been kind of a crazy housing market in Austin as well. Yeah. Now it's, I was curious. I mean, I, I guess maybe, I think everybody that's listening to this probably knows about you or who you are. But for those that don't, um, my interest in talking with Zach was around ultra marathon running and came across you probably on Rogan's podcast a few years back and your name just pops up all over the place. But it's not just the fact that you run 100 plus miles at a time, which I mean, I was driving here today thinking about it and I'm like, there's probably people that don't run a hundred miles in their entire life, <laughs> let alone in, in a 12 hour period. Right. Um, but then the way that you do it and the fact that you're primarily a ketogenic diet um, is just against the conventional ways that most people have been brought up to believe endurance athletes really need a more high carb diet. And so I've monkeyed around with keto. I've had success. I've, I've kind of fallen somewhere probably not technically keto, but I certainly eat a higher fat diet. I eat a lot of meat and I try to eat more, you know, simple vegetable based carbohydrates. But, you know, that was obviously my interest in having a conversation with you. And as I've continued to look into things and saw even what's on your, 
you know, potential ideas for the future. I'm like, I got to get him on here. So for anybody who didn't know who Zach is, he's extremely accomplished and used to hold the world record in the hundred miles. Uh, correct. Yeah. In 2019, I broke the world record for hundred miles in 12 hours, which was kind of a, I would say a parallel goal of mine throughout the course of about what had been about five and a half ish years. So that was kind of a cool benchmark to hit. And yeah, since then it's been actually broken twice by the same guy, Alexander Sorkin. So uh, I've got some work to do if I want it back, I guess, but <laughs> that's what makes the sport exciting. And I think when I broke that record in 2019, I knew that like all world records, if you go into something like that with your motivation being, I need to hold on to this for as long as I can and for whatever way possible, I'd end up living a pretty miserable life, always wondering about who was going to break it or when it was going to go down and that sort of thing. So fortunately for me, I think before I broke the record, I was more in the headspace of just trying to determine how fast I could run in a controllable environment uh, and kind of use that as my, my primary motivation. I think chasing records is fun and it certainly gives me a ton of motivation in training and racing. And it's still one of the goals of mine is to continue to lower my hundred and, and hopefully the world record time at some point, but, uh, but yeah, you know, it's been an awesome journey and, uh, I'm excited to have been a, a kind of a stepping stone along the way to bringing that, that, uh, that standard down in a runnable hundred mile stuff. So that, that had been a part of the sport that had been untouched for quite some time in uh, the most recent kind of boom in ultra running. So seeing the momentum on the flat runnable stuff kind of really pick up over the last, last couple of years has been an exciting kind of exciting part of my career. Yeah. I'm sure you get this question all the time, but like, how do you fall into ultra marathon running? Yeah. Falling into, it's probably a good way to say it. Like, <laughs> I think for me, it was, uh, you know, I, I learned that distance running was something that I was, was at least good at back in middle school when we did the presidential physical fitness challenge. And the one mile run was the thing that I stood out the most at. So uh, I consider myself fortunate that I didn't take it too seriously after that, though. I, I certainly participated in it. But it really wasn't until like my senior year in high school where I really started to kind of take it seriously. And then by the time I was like well into my college career, when I started to kind of understand the sport in a way where I could actually put into practice, like the idea of taking it seriously. And one thing I learned in college was the long run was my favorite workout of the week. So once I was removed from kind of the structure of a team atmosphere, the peaking and stuff for, for specific races and seasons and things like that, I just started running a lot. Uh, not a lot of speed for a couple of years, but a lot of distance, a lot of volume building and really discovering kind of, you know, where my strengths and weaknesses were within the sport that that I hadn't already uh, figured out through some of my other experiences. And, and that that led me to an ultra marathon in 2010, almost on accident. I I was actually just like looking online to see like what kind of marathon type distance races were available for the fall of that year. And as I was kind of going through the list, I noticed there was a 50 miler within like an hour, hour and a half of where I was living. And I didn't even know there were 50 milers in the state I was living at at the time. So I thought, you know what, maybe I'll jump in that, just see what happens. I was like 24 at the time. My thought going in was I'll do it, see what the experience is like. I'll probably go back to doing shorter stuff for another five, six years. And then by the time I'm in my thirties, I'll start doing some ultra marathons more seriously. And as fate would have it by that same time, the next year I was doing nothing but ultra marathons essentially in terms of peaking. So, <laughs> so here we are, it's one of those kind of like slippery slope sports, I would say, where you kind of get a taste of it. You see what the community is like, and it just kind of keeps inviting you back for more. And, uh, you know, now here we are almost 12 years later, still doing it. So, uh, can't say I'm disappointed with that decision at this point. Is there a line in the sand to what is considered an ultra marathon is it a 50 is it like that 50 mile line or yeah it's a good question i think like technically speaking a 50 kilometer would be kind of like what most people would consider the entry to ultra marathon it gets a little fuzzy when you start getting into kind of technical trail and mountain racing because you can have races that are actually less than a marathon in distance but take so long to finish because the train is so harsh and the weather can be so harsh that you know you may have say a 50k that world-class runners are gonna you know run a low five hour time in and you know the world record for 50k on a flat runnable surface is well under three hours so it's you can you can understand like you know athletes of similar comparable talents running nearly twice as slow due to the environment 
gives another piece to that equation. I think is usually considered when you get in those extreme mountain environments. It doesn't necessarily have to be distance based. It can just be like, well, what is the relative difficulty of this event in terms of how long it takes to finish? And I think some people would consider that. With all that said, I think most people in the United States anyway would probably consider the 50 mile kind of a, the first like real dive into ultramarathon in a lot of cases. Uh, the 100 mile distance tends to be a target for a lot of people. So most of the time when you see people jumping into ultramarathons that are shorter than that, they have a long term goal of eventually doing 100 miles or something even further than that nowadays. So I would say like, when people think of ultramarathon in North America, they oftentimes think of the 100 mile distance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I was thinking this, I had a conversation with somebody I was talking about Goggins and doing the four by four by 48 this year, or at least attempting to do that. And they're like, well, isn't that technically an ultra marathon? And I'm like, well, you're stopping. I don't think that really constitutes. And then we got into like, well, I, I'm pretty sure people stop and sleep even like 30 seconds or a couple of minutes in ultra running just to kind of reboot the the nervous system at times. So I didn't know if that's maybe a stretch to consider what's an ultra, but um, yeah, just, I was always interested in that because every time I get my head around like, Oh crap, a hundred miles, then it's like, Oh, there's a 240 mile race. And <laughs> now there's people that want to run 500 miles. And then, I mean, I want to talk about this later on, but I know you've entertained running from San Francisco to New York city, which is like 3,100 miles. Yeah. My mind entertained and my body didn't apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, that was a project I had on the schedule actually for the September of 2021. And in late summer, I actually injured my right ankle. And for me, uh, I wouldn't say it was uncharted territory. I've had injuries in the past, but most of them have, were kind of really early in my running career. Like early on in college, I navigated a few different injuries that seemed to be kind of like it played out on paper looking kind of like just like welcome to the sport. And then I figured out what I was doing and managed to be basically injury free my entire ultra running career outside of one issue I had in uh, the first half of 2017. But since then it would basically been smooth sailing. So when I injured my ankle at first, I thought it was fairly minor because I've rolled that ankle in the past. And it's like a lot of times with rolled ankles, you let it rest for a couple of days, few days, and it settles down and you can kind of resume activity. Uh, this time it just kind of lingered around a little bit and it happened at probably the worst possible time considering the project I was trying to do. It was end of July. My launch time was like early September, just from a weather standpoint. I mean, if you think about running from San Francisco to New York, record pace is six weeks almost on the dot. So like picking a time of year where you can have the least likelihood of poor weather impacting your performance is hard to find anything. So September seems to be the cleanest spot in terms of avoiding the worst of winter and the worst of summer. Uh, you can still possibly run into issues, but uh, it minimizes them. So for me, uh, targeting a project like that, I want to give myself the best chance to eke out every last minute, day, hour, whatever you want to call it, uh, with that sort of a thing. So September seems to be the spot to do it. So then when I had to kind of postpone it, do that, that ankle injury was at least a year uh, if not more, because it's just like a lot of planning, logistics, people involved. You got to make sure everyone's kind of able to carve out that much time and energy to, to help out with something like that. Cause it's certainly not a one person endeavor unless you decide to do it unsupported, which is a whole nother can of worms. <laughs> yeah. That seems crazy. I, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you plan? Cause I think you're touching on something I want to ask you about. I mean, you can't possibly train by running a hundred, a sim, you know, you can't go out and run a hundred miles to train for a hundred miles. So you're, you're breaking that up into increments. I mean, how do you gauge how much your body has to give to maximize the training, but to also ensure that you don't wear yourself down to not be able to perform in a situation like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think that's what makes the hundred mile distance so appealing to people is it gets to the point where it's so far that most people reasonably know, like, I'm just not getting anywhere near that distance in training. Uh, even the marathon, you know, you see a lot of the uh, folks who are, have been through a few of them or certainly the pros they're getting up to and sometimes past that distance. So they can really whittle down over the course of a training block uh, pretty tight within seconds of what they could potentially target from a time uh, realistically. 
Whereas with a hundred miles, you just don't really know. And when you're out there for that long, there's just so much more opportunity for unexpected things to happen that uh, you just got to kind of go into a little bit of a different headspace, in my opinion. And the training itself, I think you can get a decent look at it after you've done a few blocks and prepared for it and recognize what certain workouts maybe mean in terms of where your fitness is at. And then if that fitness has produced certain standards in the past, you can kind of ballpark about what you should be targeting. So for me, it gets real serious, I think, in terms of really picking a target pace or finishing time when I enter like the last approximate third of a training block or not block, but training, uh, training season for a race. And uh, that block is a lot of uh, race specific stuff. So I start skewing a ton of my miles into what ends up being usually like back to back long run efforts where I'm going to run, you know, in the neighborhood of three, sometimes upwards to five hours for a single run and do that on back to back days. And usually when I've gotten a few weekends of that in the books, I can start kind of putting the numbers together and piecing together a race pace strategy that's realistic that I can be confident in that if things go well on that day, I'll be able to, you know, maintain that pace or or at least not blow up to the extent where I'm giving back more time at the end than I made up for in the beginning by starting out in that pace. And that's kind of a fun part of the sport. I think that relative uncertainty or that additional lead to kind of extrapolate maybe a couple extra steps from your training uh, makes it a little, a little less clear, uh, a little more subjective and a little more interesting on race day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I try to think about things like weightlifting, right. Where as you progress, it's, your max is always your max, right? It's like, I think about running being different though. And if you can run 50 miles, you like, I would almost, is there a point where it's like, once you get that far, if you can, if you can manage pace that running an extra 25 miles really isn't as difficult as it would be to say like, Hey, I can bench press 300 pounds because I can do that. I can bench press 400 pounds. It doesn't work that way but endurance seems to be like there's a threshold that you can pass over. Yeah, that's a really good point because when you're underneath weight, like you would be with a bench press, there's no like, well, I'm going to slow down and therefore make this sustainable. In fact, that might actually make it more difficult. So uh, unless you really bounce that bar off your chest, I guess, but then you better have some sturdy, sturdy rib cage. <laughs> but uh, the, the, the hundred mile stuff, I think you're right. Like, if you, most people can probably finish hundred miles that have run 50 miles. Uh, it's more about just like managing the efforts of the day in a way that's not going to put them in a position where they have to drop out because of something really serious, like, you know, like hurting their leg or foot or ankle or whatever happens to be so badly that it's just not usable anymore. Um, yeah, there's scenarios where people are like a little more close to the back of the pack. So they're fighting cutoffs and that could potentially make it undoable from them from just, uh, a race consideration, but even those folks would likely finish the hundred mile distance given enough time. So it is uh, something where I think it, the, one of the appeals is at the baseline finishing can be a goal that most people can achieve uh, if they give it any attention and really stick with it. I've, I've talked with folks and seen folks do hundred mile races on less than 20 miles a week training, which I wouldn't advise, but <laughs> some people can do it. So it's like, uh, it kind of shows you that pieces or that side of it, where there is a, a certain element of like mental and just grit that kind of comes into the, the sport in terms of just finishing it. But from there, I think it gets exciting if you decide to continually do that distance. Cause you know, once you finished one, the next step usually when people are coming back is, well, how do I improve that? They're not necessarily as motivated to just finish another one. Sometimes if it's like an iconic course, people want to say, yeah, I finished the Leadville 100, the Western States 100, the Ultra Trail Mont Blanc 100 mile, and like some of these more iconic events. Uh, but more often than not, if someone's going to stick to a specific distance, the way that I kind of have focused on the last few years, you hit a standard then at least your next high end goal is going to be improving that. And you may want to have more than one goal going into the race, but, uh, that's usually the, the kind of the trajectory. And because you're going such long distance and it's over the course of a elapsed time, I would imagine all the variables. And especially because these courses aren't, I would think, I know there's some times where you're going to go and just run around a track, which, uh, God, man, I, <laughs> God bless everybody who does that. I would lose my mind, but the fact that you're doing this over the course of time, like obviously temperature, elevation, terrain, humidity, like all these things 
I would imagine have to be factored in because what probably doesn't make much of a difference in a mile or five miles, those small little elements can add up exponentially when you're running 12, 14 hours at a time. Yeah. Yeah. It gets interesting. You have the environmental elements in a lot of these courses. And I would say the mountains and the trails are certainly been a very popular component of the sport over the last 10 years as it's grown quite a bit. And that adds to it, right? You're like, you're not just out there necessarily to compete with yourself in a time standard. You're out there to compete with whatever environment the environment is going to give you on that day. So even with the same course where generally speaking, the topography is going to be the same, you can get some trail degradation and, and you know, trail quality changes from year to year, especially if there's like, you know, heavy amounts of rain or snow one year versus the next or things like that. But more often than not, the big like changes on race day from one year to the next, if the course is the same, is going to be something like weather where good example is the Western States 100, where they'll have course record temps in the canyon. Sometimes will get up close to 110 degrees Fahrenheit. Whereas on a cold this year's on record, it's been in the seventies in the canyons, which you can imagine 30, 40 degree variance in temperature in the middle of a hundred mile race will make a big difference in how fast you're able to navigate that and also dictate kind of how you strategize your logistics for that day, your pacing and everything that goes with it. So there's a lot to consider with hundred miles in general. And I think when you get into the more extreme environments with the more volatile weather and things like that, it just has that extra component of um, uncertainty leading into the race day of. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you have an idea of like roughly the amount of miles that you've put in, in the wilderness, I would imagine it's thousands and thousands of miles with that type of distance that you've put in. And I know there's, you guys have pacers that will run with you, but I mean, you're out there in some pretty remote areas experiencing the wilderness. I mean, any encounters with, I would imagine rattlesnakes and other things. I mean, I've just been on trails and, you know, been like, holy crap, what did I just like run past there? But yeah. you've got so much more exposure. Are you not even, because you mentioned headspace before, is that something you're not even realizing while you're out there? Yeah, it's usually not crossing my mind when I'm out there in a race itself. Uh, although there are folks who've done a lot more extreme environment races than I have where they're more likely to run into wildlife and would maybe have a slightly different story. But I do think like, when folks get into a rhythm, that's so far in the back of their mind, they'd actually have to encounter it in order to have it kind of trigger a thought process. Mm -hmm. And that's still relatively rare. Uh, you know, the, the wildlife is pretty good at getting out of there when they know there's a lot of commotion going on because uncertainty is very unpredictable for them too. And when you have a race of hundreds of people coming through, you get that first wave of folks, the aid station crews, volunteers heading out there. A lot of that gets kind of stirred up before the runners come through. But there are some pretty crazy stories, um, even at, uh, there was, I'm trying to remember what year this was. It was really early, kind of in my understanding of the sport, but there was a year kind of right before I got into certainly 100 mile stuff where the, the women's race at the Western States 100, a couple of them, I think they were, I can't remember what place they were battling out for. It was for a podium spot, I'm pretty sure. It was like second or third place, perhaps, and they ran in like two or three women ran into a mother bear, like within three or four miles of the finish line. And she didn't want to budge. She was standing right on the trail. I think she had like a cub or something down kind of in the ditch there. So she was holding her ground. And eventually one of them decided to just like, you know, grit their teeth and run past it and, and got, got, got past. I think I scared her off and she, then everyone kind of went on, but you know, that's out there. Um, actually same rate or, different year same course Jim Walmsley actually en route to breaking the course record at Western States ran into a mother bear and a cub at uh around mile 93 of the course which was kind of an iconic spot for him because a couple of years earlier he went off course when he was leading and had a course record pace in that exact spot oh. so I think like he was probably when he saw that I'm sure his mind went to you got to be kidding me this spot is just bad luck for me but yeah, the stuff is out there. You do bump into it. There's been a couple of people who've seen mountain lines out there on that course too and stuff like that. So it is possible. Still really, really rare for anybody out there who uh, is going to try to do the, do the sport. And I think like to be, to, to, to see something like that, you're probably more likely going to be in the front of the pack because just, you know, by the time the whole group has gone through their sweepers, aid station, all that stuff like that, there's a lot of commotion. So unless you've scared something up from one spot of the course to another, generally speaking, it's, uh, it gets pretty well, uh, dispersed. Mm. 
just seems like it'd be so crazy being out there in, uh, and I mean, even saying that somebody came off course, I mean, I guess, again, I forget, but when you're traveling those types of distances in somewhat remote areas, I, I mean, you can't completely mark a trail. You've got to be, I mean, how, how are you doing that? Are you looking at maps and trying to memorize that? Or are you carrying some sort of map or guide that you have if you get to a place or, I mean, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's certainly gotten easier now because of GPS watch navigation, wow, essentially. Okay. The the watch is now, like when I started the sport, the biggest problem with uh, GPS watches were they didn't last long enough to get you through a 100-mile race, and they hadn't put route navigation on there yet. So now some of these watches, like I work with a company called Koros, uh, and they have a watch that goes over 100 hours on full function. So like, that's going to get you through most races in general. Uh, 100 milers included and then you can also have uh the bandwidth on that thing to load up the gpx file of the exact course and then if you deviate from the course too far it'll start beeping at you and say hey you're going the wrong way so there's uh there's that it's not completely foolproof as i've discovered i did one time i was a little worried about going off course on a specific on a specific track and put the gpx file on my watch and then i ended up taking a wrong turn but that wrong turn kind of ran parallel with the trail i was supposed to be on so the watch I hadn't deviated far enough from a distance until I was like well off course by like two or three miles. And then it started beeping at me and was like recognized I was off course. But by then I had to like go all the way back to that junction point and get back on the right route. So um, it's not foolproof. Every runner who's done off of these has probably gone off course and uh, sacrificed themselves a, a day of uh, good racing for it. So to some degree, it tends to be just part of the sport and people are just like, if I do enough of these, it's going to happen to me eventually. So you try to minimize how often that happens. And if it happens to you in a race, you try to course correct. And just like any mistake you make during a hundred mile race, best path forward is to think about what's ahead and not dwell on what's behind you. Yeah. I can only imagine. I wouldn't do too well with that. I get pissed. I've missed the exit <laughs> on the turnpike a few times. I'm like, shit, I got to go five miles down the road and I'm yeah. traveling like 85. Right. Um, yeah. After running 60 miles, knowing you still got 40 ahead and I got to turn around and go another mile and a half back to where I should have uh, made a left turn instead of a right. Yeah, that's got to be a mental mental game that you got to really control. Um, I so, I mean, I, I'm hearing all of this. It's so impressive. Again, I don't even think it's possible for most people to comprehend how impressive it is to be able to do this from a physical standpoint. But you know, I again, conventional wisdom is like high carbs. You know, burning that that fuel, eating the little gel packs, and to hear someone like yourself has been as successful as you have been on a completely contradictory diet. Um, really just curious. I mean, I know a little high level about your story and that this was somewhat health related early on, or at least maybe somewhat health related where you're trying to kind of tinker with your macronutrients to maybe aid in a bed and some things that you're dealing with, but how, how did this keto diet fit into this and how has it aided and benefited you in this 12 year journey that you've been on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's like with endurance sport now, when low carb, at least in this most recent wave of popularity had uh, kind of gotten its, uh, it got, gotten figured out with some sports and in, in endurance in general, it, ultra marathoning, it's still a lot of growing to do. So when people thought of like endurance or running, they automatically thought of low or high carb, moderate carb and things like that. And uh, and I think a lot of that is in most cases going to stand true, especially when you're working with like the top in the, in the world, like Olympic distances for Olympic distance athletes and things like that. There's just so much things that they've already fine tuned. Uh, the variables are a little easier to uh, like hunt down small percentages of gains versus losses and things like that. But when you start getting into distances as far as 100 miles, you start to open up the window, I think, of like what types of nutritional protocols are really usable. So I think when you add the context to like what I'm doing, it doesn't seem nearly as controversial to most people. There, there are certainly people who, who will still push back on it. Um, but it, uh, you know, I think like when, you're, when we're talking about things that could take most people on most courses that aren't pancake flat, you know, 20 to 30 hours to complete, you're talking about intensity that's so low, you really can leverage uh, burning fat at a very high rate and potentially minimize the amount of fuel you have to take in during, during a race itself. Uh, so for some context there, the, 
the recommendations for single day ultra marathons is that you consume in the neighborhood of 50 to 70 grams of carbohydrate per hour. So, uh, you know, some people can do that. Some people can't. And it's, uh, you know, there's a big question out there as to how, how much you can manipulate that. I think like most things you can manipulate to a degree, but a lot of times it depends on your starting point. So someone who has you know, like what we like to call in the ultra running world, an iron gut <laughs> or in the triathlon world, I'm sure as well. Uh, those folks, uh, you know, they may not need to do a whole lot different at all. And they can easily put down 50 to 70 grams or more uh, an hour in a race like that. Uh, whereas some people are going to struggle to do a fraction of that. So when I'm coaching folks or working with folks and they're interested in dietary approaches and things like that to help supplement their race performance, we look at that sort of things. We don't just blindly say, well, this is what everyone else is doing. Therefore, this is what you should do. We want to look at the variables that are going to impact their performance. And if doing a standard moderate to high carbohydrate diet and trying to put in 50 to 70 grams of carbohydrate per hour is going to put them in a position where they're going to have a bunch of digestive issues, which is another big piece to the uh, the puzzle with ultra marathoning, that same position paper that recommends 50 to 70 grams of carbohydrate also reports, I believe, a 60% digestive issue amongst ultra marathoners on single day events. So essentially what that means is it's about a coin flips chance that you're going to have some sort of di digestive disturbance, uh, which can and oftentimes does cost you time. So then you're balancing variables of does this fueling strategy outweigh the potential deficit I'm going to have through extra bathroom breaks, puking breaks, stomach issue breaks, all sorts of things like that. Uh, for me at the individual level versus my friend who can eat 90 cal or 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour with no stomach issues all day. So it's, it does become a little bit of a N of one experiment in a lot of cases. And the interesting thing about ultra marathoning is just, we don't have a lot of really detailed research, certainly not at the hundred mile distance, certainly not in those longer end stages of those type of races. So, you know, anecdotes on the low carb side are oftentimes met by anecdotes on the train your gut side. So it's like these things all kind of like work out to be like very low amounts of quality research. And that's not a, you know, that's not anyone's fault. That's just a sport that hasn't had the funding to really probably dive into that research as well as provide a convenient spot to study this stuff. Because as you can imagine, like actually researching runners on race day on a course that goes 100 miles on a popular trail is going to be a difficult research project to get funding for and to actually execute. So it does get interesting. There's a there's a researcher actually over in the UK called Matt. His name is Matt Carpenter. And uh, he has been interested in studying low-carb athletes. Uh, I think his mindset is essentially like, it's kind of besides the point if it is ideal or not. Uh, the question is, are people going to do it? And I think the answer is yes. There's definitely people who are going to do a low carb approach. Um, you know, I'm a bad example as a coach, because since I follow a low carb approach, I probably get a much higher than average percentage of people that are interested in that, because if they are interested in it, chances You're are they come across my name. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got a higher percentage of those individuals, but there's still, uh, there's still plenty of them out there to the point where if their people are going to be doing it you know, researchers like Matt think, well, let's figure out what the best way for them to fuel is. So if moderate to high carbohydrate athletes are going to be recommended to do 50 to 70 grams of carbohydrate, what are the, the low carb athletes going to do? So through some of his research, as well as just uh, individuals he's had come through his lab, uh, he's ballparked some figures that he suspects are like probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 40 grams of carbohydrate per hour are going to be uh, kind of a sweet spot for most low carb runners. Uh, most, most endurance athletes that I work with uh, ultra marathoners that I work with, uh, people in the low carb space that come through and work with me aren't following a strict ketogenic diet by a gram standpoint. Uh, they're very much probably pushing relatively high blood ketone levels at times, and they have very high fat oxidation rates, uh, partly driven by their lifestyle and partly driven by their dietary habits. So for somebody like myself, even if I reduce my carbohydrates to say 20 to 30% of my total intake, we're looking at essentially a having or more of the carbohydrate percentages that the average runner is going to do. So that relatively large reduction in carbohydrate intake is going to force our bodies to improve its fat oxidation rates. Then it just becomes a question, in my opinion, of like, well, how fat adapted do you, quote, need to be versus want to be? And sometimes those don't always square. Cause like people oftentimes think like it's either all or nothing with this, where 
you either got to cut out carbs altogether or you got to eat all the carbs. And really there's a lot of middle ground there. I like to think of it more on like a spectrum where as you lower your carbohydrate intake, you improve your fat oxidation rate to a degree. So then the question oftentimes becomes, what can you tolerate on race day from a carbohydrate consumption standpoint sustainably without getting digestive issues? Once you have an idea of what that is, where do you need your fat oxidation rates to be in order to be able to consume that versus what you would maybe need to do with a different dietary pattern? So if I'm working with someone who has higher than average fat oxidation rates, uh, we're probably going to target you know, some a lower carbohydrate intake during the race itself. If I'm working with someone who follows a moderate to high carbohydrate diet, we're going to certainly try to get them in a position where they're hitting that 50 to 70 gram marker on their carbohydrate consumption. Uh, some athletes that I'll work with, they'll actually go and get fat oxidation tests. So we actually have different numbers of ratios of carbs to fat at varying intensities. And if we can pin that to their race intensity or get close, we can start to ballpark some figures. So that's essentially what I did when I uh, structured my fueling strategy for uh, the race at the, the Pettit Center that I did in 2019 when I ran 11 hours and 19 minutes. I had done some fat oxidation testing, found out what pace intensity I wanted to kind of average for that race and looked at my ratios of fast to carbohydrates within that and uh, saw that I needed probably minimum uh, you know, 20 to 30 grams per hour. I knew I could safely get up to 40 grams per hour without really risking a digestive issue in normal temperatures, as long as my hydration and electrolytes were on point. So I targeted 40 grams an hour and uh, I negative split that race. So I was clearly not like uh, having a hard time defending muscle glycogen on that particular event. And that's the goal, regardless of what your diet is. So a lot of times when I'm working with athletes, talking to people about what path they should go, we take a step back and try to unify everyone. So rather than saying, you're over here if you're high carb, you're over here if you're low carb, you guys have nothing in common, do things completely differently. We look at like, what are our commonalities? And the commonality is the goal on race day from a fueling standpoint is to defend muscle glycogen. Reason being is that's the small fuel tank. So that's the one you could potentially deplete regardless of what your diet is. And if you're running fast enough, you're gonna tap into some of that muscle glycogen. So you get these balances of time out there and uh, the amount of uh, glycogen you're gonna tap into at that intensity. So if you take someone like myself, where at my hundred mile race intensity, I'm burning somewhere between 80 and 90% fat. Um, we can kind of look at that and decide like, well, if I'm averaging uh, nine miles per hour, like I was at the Pettit Center, we're looking at somewhere between eight to 800 to a thousand calories per hour. So what is 10 to 20% of that from a muscle glycogen standpoint? And that's kind of going to be a pretty good target for me in terms of what I need to kind of stay on top of that and feel like I've got gas in the tank at the end when I want to really kind of throttle down and finish the race versus kind of fade off. So when, when all that stuff plays out in the field, the way I like it to in, on paper, which doesn't always happen, but uh, you can get closer, I think with some planning, then, then I think you end up in a good spot and you try to minimize your risks on the digestive side of things, but also minimize your risks on the, the glycogen depletion side of things as well. What about any impacts from an inflammation standpoint? So obviously there's the fine tuning of the, the diet and, the, and your macronutrients for race day to ensure that you have the fuel and the capacity. But what about, I mean, you're putting on a lot of miles. It's a lot of, lot of impact on your knees, your ankles. Um, I've seen a lot of research that, and I've, I personally can attest the one benefit that I've always gotten from a higher fat diet is what I anecdotally will say is a reduction in inflammation. I feel a lot less inflamed. I feel a lot less sore in my joints and where you're exponentially putting impact on those. Does, do you find a, a difference that you feel from that? Yeah, that's been something that I've recognized too. And there's tons of those anecdotes out there. I think it is one of those things where the contrarians and myself included want to be careful with that just because it's like, we don't actually know for sure, certainly not in the context of ultra running, but uh, there's a lot of people who report that as kind of their, their experience where, you know, they'll do a race after a low carb uh, protocol and they'll come out the back end feeling like they're a lot less stiff, a lot less immobile than they maybe were in the past. And, um, I mean, there's an argument there where it's like anytime you clean up your diet and you're avoiding some potentially inflammatory products, uh, you're likely going to have that experience regardless of whether it's low carb or not, which could make sense. I think like 
a lot of times when people finish a hundred mile race, it can be a scenario of just like, all right, for the next two days, I'm just going to go completely crazy and eat whatever I want, whenever I want it and completely deviate from the structure that I had the previous six months. <laughs> so like, you, you know, that entails a lot of, a lot of beer and a lot of like processed foods in a lot of cases. Sure. So like, when you think about someone who's got a structured diet, like a low carb diet, if they have a lot of success, if it's like a big, uh, flip of the switch, so to speak, like it was for me and what it sounds like it was for you and so many other people that, that, uh, stick with it, you know, for them, their incentive to kind of deviate off of that post-race may be quite a bit lower. And therefore they're getting better results just because they're not going crazy afterwards. Like they maybe would have otherwise. Uh, so that's, you know, that's, that's also an anecdote. We don't have any research to indicate that that's necessarily the case. And I certainly have clients and I certainly myself, partook in, in some binging post-race just because like you have an off season or you don't have an A race for quite some time. And you're like, uh, one way I'm going to make this lifestyle sustainable is to like relax every once in a while. So, um, that is something to consider, but for me, generally speaking, um, one of the reasons why I kind of peak my carbohydrates where I do, which is generally like, there's a few times a year when I'm really kind of throttling down in training where my carbs will be up in the 20, 30% range of my intake that's mostly the height of it for the most part outside of like, potentially, if you look at like a, a race day or something like that, where I'm going to be in a massive calorie deficit, but the calories I do eat are going to be mostly carbohydrate, uh, in small amounts as described kind of with my, my fueling targets. Uh, you know, I'll, I, I, I noticed like when I, when I start getting, you know, pushing past that, uh, just trying to see like, well, if, 20 to 30% still allows me to nail the, the faster sessions I want to do to be ready for the race. What happens if I bring them back up to some of my historic, moderate, high carbohydrate days, what happens? And, you know, the first thing I usually notice is like increased leg swelling and things like that. So, you know, another anecdote, albeit, but uh, at, at a certain point, I think when, especially when you're in a sport like ultra running, where we, we know way less than we do know. And oftentimes we know less than we think we know. And in some cases you do kind of have to take it to an individual level at a certain point. It's, I think it's perfectly fine to start out with where the research is at, uh, which is what I did. You know, I went through high school and college following what I would consider a picture perfect endurance nutrition strategy, where I was eating a lot of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, um, you know, upwards to 70, sometimes 80% carbohydrate. Uh, and it just didn't jive for me uh, when I started doing uh, ultra marathons. So that was, uh, you know, an incentive for me to make a change. It was also uh, uh, something where when I switched, I noticed a lot of things that changed for me individually, like my sleep improved. And when you think of like recovery, sleep is your number one tool in that, in that, that toolbox. So if you can improve that, performance usually comes along for a ride to some degree. So again, are we improving some variables at the expense of others, but those variables are greater and therefore yielding better results. That's, that's possible. But I think in reality, that's most people's case. You, you may have some individuals who their entire life is training for like, say a marathon at the Olympics and they can fine tune everything to a degree where, where, it, where it all kind of lines up and they can manipulate things to make the most ideal situations work across the board. Uh, and to some degree, I think the sport probably selects for that at the professional level. But, uh, but, uh, you know, I think when, when you start working with people one-on-one -on -one and figuring out what kind of variables impact their life, what their lifestyles actually like, what their preferences are, what their goals actually are, you start to open your mind a little bit to like what types of options should be made available to people who are looking to kind of enjoy the sport, enjoy life and, and meet the goals they're trying to, they're trying to hit. Yeah. Do you, do you leverage like fat? I, I used to work and maybe you still do represent a company. It was an F bomb. Uh, yeah, I've, I've worked with them a little bit in the past. Uh, the, I was good friends with their previous owner. So, uh, that was usually back when he was more involved with the company. Um, but yeah, there's been a lot more products on the market since I came into ultra running and, and certainly into endurance sport that are kind of focused more on fat based products. So I think those are, cool products um for application during races i think it gets a little more uh specific uh you know i think once you start getting up into distances that are like going to take you 20 plus hours to finish there's there's some evidence that a strict ketogenic diet would at least not be a compromise in performance at those distances 
So for someone like that, if let's say somebody wanted to follow or for whatever reason needed to stick to a strict ketogenic diet and weren't going to reintroduce carbohydrates, even to a small degree, like I do a product like that is going to be, you know, useful for them because they probably don't want to go out there with no calories in <laughs> throughout the course of the day. So fat and protein are kind of their options at that point. And stuff like, you know, nut butters, fat bombs and things like that are great tools for that group of people. And, and I think generally speaking for someone like myself, there is kind of like goals, different, different goals. So like when I'm doing my long runs, when I'm prepping for a race, I like to kind of divide them into two categories. And the one category is what I call my fat adaptation field test. The fat adaptation field test is Let's go out into the field in which we're going to participate, do a workout that's as close or most specific to the race intensity and race environment that we can get. So that tends to be the long run on course specific train. And I'm going to do some of those with just water and electrolytes and just journal how I feel. Like, do I feel like my energy levels are constant or do I feel like my energy levels are gradually dipping? Do I feel like I'm getting more energy along the course of the run and things like that? And those are all things that I use to determine whether I, you know, am ready to start practicing my race day fueling strategy versus trying to improve my fat oxidation rates. So uh, the other half of that puzzle then becomes what am I going to eat on race day? So the first half, I may not want to do those calorie free at a certain point. And just because when peak training comes around, I might be running 150 miles a week and I don't want to necessarily come back at 11 o'clock or noon on a Saturday, having eaten next to no calories and have to like kind of catch up mm -hmm. and then go out and do the same thing the next day. So then I may introduce some fat and protein calories in that run where I'm testing fat adaptation just to make sure that I'm not digging myself in too much of a calorie hole. So for me, I'll use a product called S fuels train, which is just, it's kind of like a powder, like you get for a sports drink, but it's uh, kind of fat based versus carb based. So I'll use that for those days. And then when I start practicing what I'm going to do on race day, I'm going to want to start testing some of those carbohydrate products I'm going to use. And this is where I start to kind of tease out where's the ceiling in which I feel comfortable in terms of how much I can take in before welcoming digestive issues. And for that, I'm going to do a kind of a blend between a sports product and something that's more whole food, different con or different, different like flavor profile, different texture and stuff like that, just so you're not kind of having the exact same thing all day long. And with that, I'll use a product called Espiel's Race Plus, which is their carbohydrate-based product that goes alongside Train, which is the fat-based product. And that'll make up about half my carbohydrates. And the other half I'll get from Whole Foods, which are just going to kind of help a little bit to ease digestion. So you're not just taking in liquid calories all day, uh, which I like to describe as sometimes they do their job too well. And the fact that they like just process so quickly, like if you get too much of them in at once, your body kind of has to pump fluid in your digestive tract in order to slow that rate of digestion down. And sometimes that can lead to digestive issues. So sometimes whole foods, mostly carbohydrate with small amounts of fat, protein, and fiber in there can help ease that process a little bit without the digestive issues kind of coming up. So things like salty crackers, pretzels, like sourdough bread with a little bit of peanut butter on it, maybe uh, that sort of thing will be some of the solid food options that I may like kind of weave in there with the race, the S fuels race plus. Mm. Um, so yeah, on, on those long run days where I'm testing race day strategy, basically that's just like, let's make sure in practice, this still works for me. It's a little less of a question because I've done it so many times. Now I have a pretty good idea of what's going to work and what's not, but you know, sometimes these races separate themselves by six plus months. So, and, and people a lot of times do have stories of, I used to use this product all the time and loved it. Now I can't touch anymore because as soon as I have it, I get a stomach ache. So, <laughs> you know, I'm mindful of that and I don't want to learn that on race day. So practicing it in, uh, in training is something that I think is worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have a company, it's actually based in Austin, um, called action. So we're specialty coffee, natural supplements. We've gotten, I'd say we've leaned into the keto space or at least high fat stuff. We've got, mm -hmm. um, called fuel, but it's just MCT, like a fat bomb, like you were saying. Oh, cool. It's, it's perfect for me, like with jujitsu and things where I need to get an energy burst, but I don't want to go and, and wolf down a bunch of food before I'm training. And it's, you know, just become a really quick, easy way to do it. And when you were talking about that, and I think you kind of touched on it, found it interesting that you're leveraging like powders that are mixed, but as part of that also to ensure that you're getting additional fluid intake as well too. And so that's an opportunity to get both, whether it be carb or high fat, along with fluid intake with water. 
Yeah, yeah, I think uh, obviously that's another piece to the the puzzle is hydration, which is water and electrolytes for the most part. And yeah, you can double dip on that when you're blending your fuel in with the liquid calories. I do that. Some people don't like that because they they fear this this idea of tying their fluid and their calories together because then if they need to increase one or reduce the other, if it's tethered together, they may not be able to do that quite as easily. But I don't find that to be much of an issue, at least not for me, because I, I tend to, you know, kind of go with a 50, 50 split between liquid calories and solid calories. So I can always like pull from or add to the solid food calories if I need to, and then increase plain water and electrolytes if I need to, mm -hmm. in order to get to that space. But, but yeah, yeah, I think you're, you're right. It's, you're going to need some water and some electrolytes during the race. So if some of your fueling is tied to that, then you can minimize logistics a little bit by grabbing a bottle that has all of them in there and just say, okay, I checked all three of those boxes for the next X number of minutes or hour or whatever it happens to be. And you can kind of get back to just focusing on, on moving forward in the race. But, you know, another interesting thing, not to go back too far, but uh, with the, the fat bomb type stuff, but one thing I really like that type of stuff for is those like super low volume, kind of higher calorie uh, type of products like that is when I, the, when I get to the morning of a hundred mile race, uh, I'll have had some carbohydrate for dinner the night before, but the morning of, I usually stay away from carbohydrate because the intensity of a hundred miler is so low. I don't really need to like feel, I don't feel the need to like trigger my body to burn carbohydrates by introducing a bunch of them right before I start. Mm -hmm. Uh, in fact, that may be detrimental um, in terms of what you want to do before a long race like that, it may be better off. I think the research for this is very early, but, uh, looking like it'll show some promise is, uh, especially if you're a low carbohydrate runner, you probably want to avoid carbohydrates for breakfast before the start of the race, and then wait maybe about 45 minutes in the race to start introducing carbohydrate sources. Uh, but you don't necessarily want to wake up the morning of a hundred mile race, eat nothing, and then start the race and then start feeling 45 minutes in because you're going to burn a ton of calories that day. So you may do yourself some favor by front loading some calories, which means if you're avoiding carbohydrates, you're going to want to do fats and proteins and fats and proteins. You probably don't want to, well, any food, you don't want to like bulk up in your stomach before the start of a race. So some of these low volume, high energy type of products like nut butters, fat bombs, that sort of stuff can be really good uh, pre-race options for folks who are kind of going that route. Do you have a, is it fairly typical as far as weight loss during, or if you run a hundred miles, are you always like in that same, I'm coming out, you know, five to 10 pounds lighter than when I started? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because sometimes you just don't get a good look at that until a couple of days after, because there's just so much thing. There's so many things that go wonky when you put your body through that. And, you know, part of it's the physical act of actually running hundred miles. And the other piece to that, I think is just the lack of sleep. Most people don't sleep great the night before a race, the races themselves sometimes start at five in the morning. So like, even if you do sleep well, you're probably not going to get more than a few hours just from a, you know, you gotta be waking up at about 3am in a lot of cases then. Uh, and then, you know, most people are going to run through the night in a hundred mile race. So they're going to lose the night of sleep on the, uh, the that day itself even if you are finishing before dark or before your typical bedtime, there's just so many like weird hormonal, like things that are going on after running a hundred miles, dehydration, energy deficit, all sorts of stuff that just make it really hard to, uh, hard to fall asleep that next night. So you end up having this scenario of you put your body through hundred miles of running then you put yourself through relative sleep deprivation, cortisols through the roof, uh, all sorts of stuff is just, just whacked out. And a lot of that leads to like fluid retention. You go from a dehydrated state to a hyperhydrated state oftentimes. And, and, you know, like I said earlier, sometimes you're introducing a bunch of foods you normally don't eat because you're like, it's done. Here's my opportunity. Let's go eat two large pizzas, <laughs> something like that. Or like, well, how, how many drive-throughs can we head through before the next morning? And <laughs> That sort of mentality. And then you just end up with like a ton of water retention. And usually a few days later, that kind of flushes through. But, but that's always been my, um, one of my uh, biggest uh, motivators to kind of get right back on more of a strict ketogenic diet as soon as I finish a race. Because I notice I get a lot less of that leg swelling, mm -hmm. a lot less of that feeling like my body is retaining a ton of extra water. And, 
it just tends to be a little more of a smooth transition for me. And then when I do start training again, structure, I can kind of like move off of a more strict ketogenic diet onto a more low carbohydrate diet and kind of get back to the formula that I've used for, you know, the better part of the last 10 years. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'll usually probably lose a couple pounds during a race just from the, the, the energy expenditure relative to the energy intake, but I'm usually taking a week off almost entirely and then two weeks unstructured. So plenty of opportunity to eat some, some fatty steaks and put that weight back on before you have a chance to realize it's even gone. Well, now that you're in Texas, you've got all that barbecue. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Some of those things. Yeah. Things. Burn two pounds of fat, eat two pounds of brisket and you're good to go. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I, I know you had mentioned the run across America the injury kind of derailed that. What else do you have on the docket now? I mean, with the move to, to Austin, is there any, any project in particular that you've put in a lot of focus into now? Yeah. So even though I was unfortunate to have to cancel that project, I certainly learned a lot in the time I did spend preparing for it for the, with the people I spoke to who have done projects like that. Some of them had even done that specific project. So uh, I, I really love knowing what I learned during that. But with that said, I think one thing I need to focus on before I put that project back on the calendar is like, yeah, just working on kind of building a physique that's maybe a little different than what I would for say a hundred mile race where you're going to be done in a day and you can kind of trash your body and then kind of shut it down for a while. Whereas really running across the country is less about speed and more about durability. So um, I think uh, the type of training that I will probably do when I put that back on the calendar is going to put me in a, in a much more drastic position than I maybe originally thought in terms of how different that's going to be than what I would be doing for like a hundred mile race or certainly something shorter than that. So that just tells me that I need to kind of maybe be a little more smart about when I put it on the calendar. So I have that on-ramp of time to do that and have some opportunity to do some stage races and really tease out what's working and what's not versus, uh, you know, kind of jumping into like a really big project like that without doing some kind of more like shorter versions of it where it's like three days or a week or something like that versus six plus weeks. Okay. Uh, so to answer your question, then I'm, I'm kind of going back to some of my more traditional stuff for now, uh, as I kind of figure out the landscape within that. Uh, so I'll be training for uh, a hundred miler, likely around the June timeline, but I plan on doing quite a bit of racing between now and then as a way to kind of get get uh, ready for it. So personally, like this isn't necessarily a great strategy for everybody, but I do like to do races like uh, in the lead up to a goal race and just hold myself accountable not to like leave it all out there, so to speak, so that I'm able to kind of use it as a very high quality long run, but not necessarily destroy my body the way I would after like a goal hundred mile race and need to take a couple of weeks off to kind of feel normal again. So uh, between now and June, I'll probably do a handful of local, like 50 K to hundred K type stuff, maybe do a little traveling for some, if there, uh, some opportunities pop up that are kind of fun, exciting spots to head to, but, uh, everything will be skewed towards the, like a hundred fast runnable hundred miler in the kind of the June timeframe. That'll be really cool. I appreciate you taking some time, man. This is, uh, one of the, one of the more interesting and fulfilling conversations that I've had. And I talk with a lot of really cool and interesting people, but I've had uh, an interest in ultra since I've heard about you years ago and to be able to actually have the conversation with you about it. It's uh, it's been so cool. So thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Yeah. My pleasure, Justin. Did you, you, and you said you you have a company that's based out of Austin. Yeah. So um, company's called action. So um, my partner, Joe, he was, uh, one of the on it employees, original on it oh, employees cool. working for Aubrey. Um, and a few years back, I want to say, and I, I might be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure on it was in kind of looking at maybe going down the road of a specialty coffee line. Hmm. And he went to Guatemala, did the sourcing and was like hooked and on it decided to not go that route. And I think they partnered up with another company at first. And then actually we've done some white label work for them since, but Joe left on it and said, Hey, I'm going to really dive in. And he's like a roasting guru and really big into like creating new natural supplement products. And he asked me to come on board about, well, actually it was like two months before the pandemic hit. And uh, we've started to grow it from just coffee to performance and natural supplements, turmeric, hemp, MCTs, 
leveraging some mushroom um, and starting to venture into some vegan um, proteins, some whey proteins and a bunch of amino acids and things. So yeah, it's uh, we're based down in Austin and uh, we're doing a lot in the, in the MMA community, do a lot in the outdoors community, really just people with active lifestyles. So. Very cool. Yeah. It was, uh, so you're not in Austin and you're just, that's based split, Austin. Yeah. I split time. So I, I live primarily up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Oh, cool. Uh, was traveling a lot, but once the pandemic kind of hit, it's, it's been a little less being able to get down there. Um, my hope is that this summer I'll be able to, I had two little guys too, which is crazy since, since yeah. the pandemic hit, I started with action and had two little boys. And so it's like trying to rearrange travel to, to make that happen. He's, my partner, Joe has been leaning in heavily. So I appreciate him doing that, but hopefully I get down there in the springtime, maybe early summer. And, uh, you'll have to get me your information. I'll get you a, a care package of stuff center. I don't know if you're a coffee drinker or not, but, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. good stuff and check it out. We always yeah. help out the folks in the Austin area. So. Cool. Yeah. You'll have to shoot me a note when you're in town. If you're not too busy, might be fun to meet up and, and meet in person, but, uh, yeah, otherwise I'd love to try out your guys' coffee and, uh, I'm definitely a wake up first thing in the morning, cup of coffee, then hit the road for some miles. So <laughs> it'll get put to use. I'm partial, but it's pretty darn good. Joe does a great job and it's, uh, it's all natural and it's, uh, it's, yeah, you'll like it. Awesome. Uh, yeah, man. Hey, awesome. Really do appreciate it. And, uh, hopefully we can do this again in the future, but, um, thank you. And, uh, I'll be in touch, man. My pleasure. Take care. Yeah.